0: All right, so let's get started then. Um, among, among the challenges that, uh, that coronavirus has, has created um, and, and the many institutions that, that it has uh, caused to close, so one, one case where there was a, a major question as to what would happen, how, how, uh, one, how the community would respond to the challenges of, of coronavirus is the case of, of mikvah and MICVA Comes in a few different varieties. The mikvah is used uh, for tevilas kalim, and for men going to the mikvah in certain communities, uh, and for women going to the mikvah in halakhically observant communities. And so we're going to examine for the next uh, for the next hour or so. We're gonna, we're going to examine the uh, the response the responses of different communities, and and uh, you know there's there's some outliers, but there's largely been one one direction of response, although. Comple- with complex uh, issues and complex details, um, the communal response to to this challenge of of mikvah and what to do about mikvah in uh, you know in a world w- in a during a pandemic. So I'll share I'll share the uh, the handout. Um, this uh, things came to a head really as soon as as soon as there was uh, a decision made in some communities to close down shuls and close down. All other, uh, all other religious institutions. So the question was, what about mikvah? And uh, the, the fa- in a fascinating way, um, uh, and and strikingly, the RCBC, which uh, to its credit, uh, to its great credit, was the first, uh, first institution, you know, to voluntarily shut down its shuls, uh, you know, getting ahead, ahead of the curve in order to flatten the curve. So the RCBC, what well, we'll see this, this later on the handout, um, when they when they closed down the shuls, they said keep, we're keeping the mikvah open. So that's that's really a striking data point. And, and let's try to understand why, of all the things, and when everything was closing down uh, in the Jewish community, mikvahs, at least for certain operations, uh, have have overwhelmingly stayed open. And we'll start by talking about uh, tvilas kalim, dipping of, of one's utensils in order to uh, allow, allow one to use them after acquiring them. Um, we'll start with that. We'll then talk about men's, men's mikvahs, and those two are, are uh, we'll see, are... Uh, you know, there's been different responses and then we'll move to, uh, to women's mikvahs, spend the most time on that. And in some ways there's the highest stakes on that issue. So, as I mentioned, the the, uh, the mikvahs stayed open when the community closed down, although within a couple of weeks by March 23rd, this is just an example, the Englewood mikvah updated the community and said uh, that it would be closing the Kalim mikvah, it said even though the TNAC Kalim mikvah would stay open, uh, but you know, this was the beginning of of uh, a trend of many, many, many uh, communities closing their kalem mikvah, right? So uh, you know, you when you buy a new uh, a new item, uh, a new utensil of a certain sort, you're supposed to take it to the mikvah to tovel it before using it, and uh, that that opportunity was no longer being uh, granted uh, in, in in communities. And Tina kelim mikvah stayed open then, but later on it closed down. So the question became, well, the re- first the reason for that was once it became clearer that there were risks um, of really any sort of, of human interaction, there was a risk associated with it, um, given the relative weight of, uh, you know, and, and the, of of uh, kalem the need for, for totaling being not so great. So the, the you know, the, the right thing to do it was decided was essentially to shut down Kalem Mikvahs. Some Kalem Mikvahs, I think, have stayed open, but overwhelmingly, they've been closed. The question then becomes, and this is right before Pesach, what does one do without a Kalem Mikvah? And before Pesach, it's more pressing, often people... Uh, you know, if they're not going to kosher their items for Pesach, they wanna, they'll buy new, new items, new kalim for Pesach, but you need to tovel them. So how is one to tovel uh, their kalim if the, if the mikvah for kalim is closed? So essentially there have been two approaches. Um, one, this was very popular in Israel. Uh, uh, it was promoted in a bunch of different places. So here's one website called e in Israel. Um, I think there's a pun here, a double pun, e tevila first of all, e like online, right? And also e in Hebrew can mean not, so it's sort of like a tevila without a tavila, and they're, 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 they posted an article called Sale of Electric Utensils to Gentiles. This is not their innovation, this is a long-standing uh, conception that generally one needs to be tovel kalim, uh, that, uh, you know, the utensils that relate to food uh, preparation and eating. Um, Postgame have various approaches on what one can do if there's no situation, there's no opportunity to be tovel, and um, this comes up with a lot of issues like toasters or, or you know, uh, sandwich makers where there's a, there's a chance you'll break it in those cases. But here, Machon Tzomet, which is uh, an institution for technology and halacha, they have um, a, a solution here, uh, which is the hal- halacha states that a utensil which is jointly owned by a Jew and a Gentile does not require tefillah right? Tefillah s'kelem is only necessary for, for items previously owned by a non-Jew, then acquired by a Jew. If it still has non-Jewish ownership, it doesn't need tefillah. The Tzomat Institute has organized a way for the public to appoint the Institute as their agents to sell a portion of the utensils to a Gentile, give them permission to, uh, to use the entire device. So um, you know, we're used to this idea of appointing a rabbi to sell chametz before Pesach, but this, in a sense, just extended that idea. You appoint a rabbi or the Tzomit Institute to sell your devices that need tevila. And they talk about what cases it's better to do, what cases it's not. But this is one approach that some took. Uh, the other approach, um, Rav Schechter of YU, didn't particularly like uh, that idea. Um, but he, he has a, a somewhat different uh, s- a suggestion. First of all, of course, one can try to tovel, even if the mikvah is not open, you can tovel utensils in a body of water. So if you can go in, you know, you go to the, the, local, uh, uh, the local lake or something like that, that's an option too. But I think at this point that wouldn't necessarily be so advisable either. We'll, get, we'll talk about that later. Um, but uh, Shulchan Aruch talks about transferring ownership to a non-Jew. However, this is not necessarily a reasonable option at a time when people are committed to maintaining standards of social distancing. I think the idea there was, um, it's preferable if you're gonna transfer ownership, Preferable that you do it in person with a handshake and that sort of thing, so that wouldn't work so well. So, uh Shafter suggests a different option. It's permitted to use utensils that have not been immersed after renouncing ownership of the utensils. You'd be moth gear, you give up your ownership of the utensils, and that way, if you don't own them, there's no need for you to be told them. So you'll be using them but in, in practice, but in theory, you don't own them. And uh, there's some conditions here, you have to have full intent that you're really declaring them ownerless, Uh, and they have to declare it to three people in your neighborhoods that it's it's sort of public, it's publicly known, two of the people are witnesses. And interestingly, this is a really part of a different topic, but it doesn't have to be done in front of three people in person. It can be declared over email or social media to three people. So that's interesting in terms of defining uh, public that social media accounts. And once you declare them ownerless, um, you should remove them out of your house and leave them outside so someone can theoretically take them and then take them back in and use them. The story, they, they tell the story, uh, uh, some people uh, are, are concerned about toveling things like um, like glass uh, soda bottles or, or, uh, or uh, other drinks, soft drinks, when they used to come in glass. Doesn't really happen much anymore. So some some people, uh, most, most people don't tovel them, but some people think you need to tovel them. So one workaround is to be gears to give up ownership of your, of your glass utensil, the the story is told about uh, about my my Rabbi Rav Lichtenstein that he uh, in, I don't remember the specifics of the case. Would he was mafgir, He gave up ownership of various utensils, so there wouldn't be an issue of tevila. And one year, uh, some uh, yeshiva students came on Purim and uh, took all his things that he had been mafgir, because he doesn't own them anymore, right? He gave up ownership, and uh, he didn't object. And then they tried to return them later, and then he objected. He said, "Don't give it back to me. You you acquired it fair and square. It was." Uh, you know, it was ownerless, and you picked it up. So this is a bit of a workaround. It's a bit of a loophole. But uh, if you take treat it seriously, then maybe you really are giving up ownership. So those are the two workarounds that were suggested. For those who can't, Tovel and Akala mikvah because it no longer was safe, uh, there's the option of, of either selling or, or giving up part of the uh, utensil to a non-Jew or of, uh, of uh, giving up ownership altogether and being mafkirit. So much for that. That there wasn't a major controversy there, although I, I think some places decided to keep their utensils, uh, utensil uh, Kayla mikvah open, maybe where they thought it was safer or they were less concerned. But there were no major debates there. Let's move on to men's mikvahs, where there's a bit more of a debate. Um, so the this uh, generally in in Hasidic, uh, especially in Hasidic communities, there is a practice where men go to the mikvah every day before davening. That's a, a common practice and if you think about what that means in terms of numbers, you have a large dense community and a uh, densely populated community and one men's mikveh and so you have hundreds and hundreds of people who go in every day in the morning. So that's really, uh, you know, uh, in terms of public health risk of, of people interacting during a pandemic, there's a very, very major risk there. So in Israel, the Isra- Israel's religious ministry went back and forth as I guess as they were learning more about coronavirus. First, they uh, first, they closed down the men's mikvahs completely. Then they opened them up again. Um, you know, they sort of went back and forth a couple of times. So, if you look at different dates, there's different guidance. Um, you know, they said on March 23rd, hamishan hashim mikvah." Uh, so, we only have five men in the mikvah building at a time, um, and they have to be two meters away from each other. You know, they're trying to implement some sort of standards. And then. Um, uh, that, that obviously didn't work terribly well, and uh, a couple weeks later, April second, the the Israel's religious ministry came out again and said, sur uh, mikvot You can't you can't open men's mikvahs. All men's mikvahs uh, need to be closed. Presumably, the idea was it would be impossible to enforce the guidelines, and maybe even if you could enforce them, uh, there would be a risk. Um, so they decided to close down the um, close down the men's mikvahs. Now, what's uh, What's at stake here? So the minhag, it's, it's a, you know, based on a, 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 a practice of Ezra that uh, men are, are presumed to become uh, ritually impure. And even though ritual impurity is not generally practiced uh, nowadays, uh, still there's a practice, a minhag, to, to go to the mikvah. So that's, that's the practice there. And the question is what happens if you close down the men's mikvahs and you have some men who still want to tovel? So a few different things happen. First of all, um, uh, this news article, I didn't quote it at length, but. So, this has happened before many times in many different places, but one of those places has been in Israel where, in places where the Kalim mikvah was open, the Kalim mikvah was usually just a small little tub. Um, so, um, some Kharidim who would, who would generally want to go to the mikvah, since their men's mikvah was closed, they would go to their local Kalim mikvah, not set up for human use, and would jump right in. I've heard such stories about all sorts of caleb mikvahs. Um, you know, in, in a case of need, you jump in uh, and it's happened before. Obviously, that's not safe at all, especially if multiple people are doing it. Um, uh, but uh, that, that's one result, that's one thing that happened. If you look, there's actually a discussion among, among uh, different different halakhic thinkers in the Haredi community as to what to do, uh, uh, how, to, how to deal with the, the situation. And um, so this article, source number seven, uh, Rav Chaim Kanievsky, you know, sort of recognized as the Gadol, the leader of the Haredi world, so he said, and this is on March 18th, again, this went back and forth in Israel, he said, Men shouldn't go to the mikveh at this point in time, and uh, his, his basis was That uh, in halacha we have a general principle that we treat danger more stringently than we tra- treat prohibitions. Now, there's a longer story to be told about Rav Chaim Kanievsky first saying to keep all institutions open, and then changing his mind, without going into those details, um, at, at whatever, at, at, whatever the, the timing and logic was, he decided uh, that Kehla Mikva should be closed, because uh, they are unsafe. And then, this article goes on in some detail, talks about one of his students, Rav Cook, not, not uh, the famous Rav Cook, who spoke about what to do instead. So, bo. What about uh, an alternative? Instead of using a mikvah, can you use a shower? Can a shower head serve to do this, uh, this tevilah? Which is the Gemara talks about um, pouring nine kabin. That's a certain measurement of water on oneself, and that can work for tevilas Ezra. Not for, not for women's tevilah, but for tevilas Ezra, pouring nine uh, kabin, pouring that amount of water on your head can work. So, does that work here in a shower? It needs to be done with uh, with you know a cle with a utensil that draws that much water. You can't use a shower head, which is sort of pouring it down. Instead, you need to get some sort of bin and pour it on your head. So that that's that that's one opinion that shower heads don't work. However, others, including uh Michiel Ben Shimon, who I hadn't heard of previously, but he published a uh, you know, a book or a, a short safer with different halachas relating to coronavirus. So he says he talks about how one can uh, use the shower to to pour the tes, uh, tisha kabbin, and um, he says it's general. It's a general, um, you know, sort of backup plan that one can use. But um, you know, you just stand right under the water of the shower. How long do you need to be there? He talks about uh, fifty seconds. I heard some people Rav Asher Weiss said five minutes. Um, and he notes there's a dispute here, rebel Yashiv says, it doesn't work, but, but uh, So even though some people don't like the idea of using the shower, because it needs to be in a, in a utensil, poured on a, in a utensil, um, uh, still in a case where it's impossible, otherwise it still works. So there are two, two views as to how to one can do it for, for communities where men use the mikveh, but um, Again, the the overall practice, the big major takeaway is that men's mikvahs uh, in Israel and in America uh, overwhelmingly closed, again, with some exceptions, with some back and forth. And, uh, you know, it's hard to know if there's full, uh, you know, know, people taking, uh, uh, applying that fully, but at least in theory, those uh, men's mikvahs all closed. And the idea here is this is a minhag. It's a practice. It's not, it's not, it's not a a very severe uh, consequence if one can't, Use the men's mikvah, and and uh, there even are alternatives. There are ways of having the equivalent of a mikvah, either with a shower head or with uh, pouring a uh, you know a big uh, basin of water on oneself. You can get the equivalent of a of a mikvah. And chamira sakanta mesura, danger is is a very important halachic principle. We treat it more seriously than than uh, halachic obligations, uh, all things being equal. And so, the, generally speaking, the decision was made to close down men's mikvahs. But now, if we go to, to women's mikvahs, um, we'll see that it's a very different, uh, a very different uh, story, a different approach. So if we go back, and I mentioned this before, the first, uh, the first statement about closing religious institutions that was done voluntarily, certainly in the US, the RCBC, Rabbinical Council of Bergen County, so they wrote um, on March 12th, and if you look, they said everyone's encouraged to work from home, to stay home. Um, to not go to school, to not have playgroups, um, shul is closed. There should be no house minyanim, no public celebrations, no group Shabbos meals, um, no shiva visits in person, no levayas. Essentially, all religious and other intera- all, and religious and other experiences that involve human interaction are canceled or done to be done remotely rather than in person. Restaurants should close, No contact sports. The one exception, at the end of the list here, um, is. Uh, the exception at the end of the list here is uh, the mikvah will remain open at the, at the guidance of the CDC and local health authorities, right? So the, the major exception is mikvahs stay open. Um, women under mandatory quarantine or experiencing symptoms of in- illness may not use the mikvah. We'll get to that more later, but obviously people who are sick, it would be a bad idea for them to use the mikvah. That's, that would potentially spread it. Please consult your rub for further clarification. So we're going to get into those details now, but... The, the, first, the, the first thing that stands out, you read this letter from the RCVC, if you knew nothing about Judaism, you would say, well, what is it about these mikveot, the what is it about the mikvah that that stays open when everything else is canceled? All other religious experiences that are done communally are closed down. The only one that stays open is the mikveh. Why is the mikvah different and what's the logic here? <clears throat> so, we'll see. Um, there's, there's a few different discussions that tie into this question. One question is, you know, can mikvahs be safe? Obviously, uh, you know, the, the general halachaism and uh, this keeps coming up. If there's a clear danger to someone's life, that overrides that overrides, uh, you know, uh, all all halachos except for quote unquote the big three, right? So except for um, murder, uh, sexually prohibited activities, and idolatry. So if this actually may qualify as one of those three, which is a complicating factor. But generally. Generally, if there's real uh, threat to someone's life, you, we'd certainly try to figure out different ways of doing things. There would be, uh, the goal would be to find a, a workaround a way that wouldn't endanger anyone's life. So the question, the first question is, are the mikvahs safe? And how would that be determined? How can we, how can one make sure that they're as safe uh, as, uh, as possible? So that's one question. The other question will be, um, are there alternatives to mikvah use? Either an alternative, just like with men's mikvahs, a way of having something that's not quite a mikvah, but that, you know, that's not in a public place, but that can accomplish the same thing as a mikvah. And alternatively, for those who don't use the mikvah, is there a way of, of having uh, sort of a different result than one would usually have? So we're gonna look at those discussions. Um, yeah, so the first question is the question of safety. Is the mikvah safe? And this, this question, I think, as far as I can tell, was a, you know, was raised, much more uh, clearly and loudly in Israel than in America, uh, likely because the circumstances were different. So let's take a look at a couple of articles uh, coming out of Israel. This uh, source, Tower 10, article from Jerusalem Post. Um, The coronavirus pandemic has far-reaching consequences, talking about mikvaos, ritual baths, women immerse once a month after their menstrual cycle has ended. And it says the question became more acute this week after it emerged that a woman who had been infected with coronavirus but was asymptomatic Immersed in a public mikvah in a fraud meaning that other women who had immersed there had to go into quarantine. So there was, early on, March 30th, 31st, and you know this happened before then because it was reported then. There was a case, at least one case, uh, in a public mikvah where coronavirus spread, where the mikvah served as a vector for spreading the disease. And it says that the health ministry released a statement that one percent of cases of spreading coronavirus happened in a mikvah, meaning about three cases of, of uh, uh, three cases where coronavirus was spread in a mikvah. So, so what, what, in, in the wake of those facts, um, uh, two, two people, uh, Dr. Hannah Adler Lazarovitz and Rabbanitz Sara Siegel Katz, looked into some of these details, and they decided, based on what they found at that time, they ruled that women should refrain from immersing in mikvah if they cannot be certain that the requisite hygiene standards are adhered to in light of the coronavirus pandemic. If you can't be sure that your mikvah is following the standards, there's a real problem. And one of the things that they noted is that, um, is that that here, just scrolling down a bit, 75% of public mikvah do not have a requisite operating license as of five years ago. So essentially the way things work in Israel, uh, they were arguing it's the wild west. There's no standards or there are standards, but they're not followed. Three quarters of mikvahs don't follow, don't have an operating license, and if they don't have an operating license, you have every reason to worry that they're not disinfecting, that they're not cleaning properly, that they're not following whatever uh, procedures are, are supposed to be put in place to ensure that uh, you know it doesn't spread between people. So, that was their back in March, that was their uh, position, and they publicized it. And uh, you know, for good reason, this led to a, a real uh, you know, real shakeup in the Dati community. So first there was Rev Eliezer Malamid, major postake. He said, since the commandment for women to immerse after a menstrual cycle is so crucial, it should not be postponed. Don't push off uh, going to the mikveh because of these worries, because it's such an important it's such an important uh, uh, you know mitzvah requirement and um we're not gonna go through the, the article in, in super detail but basically they uh they, they both were making arguments from silence. Um Lazarovitz and Siegel Katz said well, you know, it doesn't say the the government didn't say that that you could use the mikvahs. They didn't say it was safe. And Rav said the government didn't say it was unsafe. So there was a lot of confusion at that early stage, and um, a lot of people a lot of people spoke up, um, both individuals and leaders, uh, saying that, that there seems to be a real problem here. How can we use the mikvahs if they're actually unsafe? If people are spreading coronavirus through the mikvahs? So that was early on, and um, in I think what resolved that issue, uh, both in, in uh, Israel to, and where it was a major issue and in America where there were people worried as well, especially people who heard that there have been cases in Israel and people are just worried generally, you know, there's a lot of, we don't know that much about coronavirus, maybe it can spread uh, through mikveh. And so th- there, those, the response to those worries, as far as I can tell, has been um, largely through people doing the research, trying to figure out as much as possible how uh, you know what the risks are and how best to counteract them. So in an article in The Atlantic, um, which itself is, is uh, striking that The Atlantic is a sort of a general interest American magazine, they ran an article about women in mikvah. Um, so they, they, they write as follows, as, as a response to some of the concerns that they lay out earlier in the article, many Jewish leaders believe that mikvah immersion is safe. Lila Kashdan, a rabbi who works as a bioethicist at several hospitals, uh, has re- spent recent weeks advising rabbis and mikvah directors around the country about how to handle the coronavirus crisis. She constantly monitors the latest guidelines from the CDC and local governments. And uh, her findings are, as are spelled out, mikvahs are not distinctively risky, right? The water is not, any, is not really unsafe. You can't really, apparently, a uh, coronavirus doesn't spread through water. That's the government guidance. And especially in, in uh, mikvahs where the water is uh, chlorinated or brominated, it can't, you know, that would kill any coronavirus, so it can't spread through the water. The question then is, okay, but maybe it can spread, you know, just through the air like anywhere else. And for that reason, um, you know, she, uh, 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 so the, the, you know, the various guidance was um, from from Lila Kajan and from others, the guidance was um, to make sure to disinfect everything in the mikvah between people who go and to not have multiple people in a room at a time, in order to minimize as much as possible uh, the risks. So we'll, we'll get more into this, uh, this question about details of, of protocols and whatnot, but um, you know, the most mikvahs, the overwhelming majority of mikvahs remained open. It's in it notes here, some mikvahs found the risks of immersion to be intolerable. So Mayim Chaim, a pluralist egalitarian mikvah in Boston decided in late March to close, but that's the exception. Overwhelmingly and especially within the Orthodox uh, uh, mikvahs, Orthodox affiliated mikvahs, uh mikvas have have remained open, and uh, largely due to the efforts of of people like uh, like Lila Kashdan, uh, who who worked out, who tried to figure out as many details as possible, who stayed up to date on the guidance as to uh, what would be safe and what would be unsafe. Um, and and the stakes here are obviously are very high. We're we're gonna we'll talk more about that in a bit, but. You know, under, under traditional Jewish law, under halacha, um, you know, a, a, if a woman needs to go to the mikveh um, because of due to her menstrual cycle and doesn't go to the mikveh, so she's prohibited uh, to her husband, both, which both means uh, sexual activity, but also means, in the general case, means uh, any sort of touching or, or other, uh, other harkakos, other ways that they're, they're, the couple's supposed to distance from one another. So that can, you know, that can be a major strain on a relationship. And uh, certainly for women who are trying to get pregnant, uh, that would create, uh, you know, uh, an insurmountable problem. But even just uh, for for uh, regular uh, marital continuity, it's a real challenge to not have, uh, to, you know, for, for the woman to not be able to go to the mikvah. So there's a real need uh, on that side, and that many women have expressed that that uh, that many women want to go to the mikvah. So this is expressed well um, by uh, Ruth uh, Belinsky Friedman, and both both she and Lala Kashin are graduates of of uh, Maharat. Um, and both have, have taken, I think, as far as I can tell, leadership roles, um, you know, representing, uh, representing the issues and representing the voices of, of, uh, of women and their congregants and, and coming up with policies. Um, so so uh, this is uh, Ruth Belinsky Friedman. Although people outside of the Orthodox community might say that these women should just stay home, going to the mikvah is not optional in the way that praying together in synagogue or attending family gatherings is, according to Ruth Belinsky Friedman at OEF Shalom. I very much understand the impulse to see religion as more symbolic, something we do when we're able to. But in time of crisis, we put aside, she said, but you can't cancel the commandments governing sex. She said, that's the word of God. So uh, I think due to, due to both the great need uh, for people to, uh, to be able to have access to a mikvah, to a women's mikvah, and given uh, the safety con- concerns being allayed, that's the reason why, uh, overwhelmingly, mikvahs have remained open. Um, and in Israel, going back to Israel, uh, Dr. Dina Zimmerman, Yoetzet uh, Halacha. Um, as far as I can tell, she was the one who did a lot of the a lot of the uh, research and, and coming up with standards and making sure that the standards are implemented. Which, of course, in Israel was the main issue. Um, but making sure that every mikvah was following as much as possible was following the standards in order to make sure that that it was safe. Uh, in Israel as well, so that's the question of safety. And of course, this is not convincing to everyone. There are some, uh, there are some who have uh, who have published, uh, you know, articles or, or or you know, declared publicly that they think that mikvahs are not safe and should not be used. Um, I saw uh, a different graduate of Maharat, uh, Dr. Carmela Abraham, uh, you know, suggest that people not use the mikvah. But you know, those are more marginal voices, certainly within Orthodoxy. Those are the more marginal voices that's saying that no one should use a mikvah, that it's unsafe uh, for use. We'll, we'll get more, it, for going further, we'll get to what sort of the options that individuals have had. But in terms of keeping the mikvahs open, um, the overwhelming position uh, of, uh, of people across the board has been, it's safe enough to use for those who want to use it. It should be an option. And, uh, and, and that's, that's been the question of safety, the way it's been generally decided. Although there have been some dissenting voices and certainly many people uh, have been worried, and you know, for good reason. This is a, a new pandemic. We don't know how it works, how the disease works. Um, so that's the, uh, that's the safety question. Now, the other question, and, and there was some, you know, some, a few different proposals for this, is let's say you can't use a mikvah, which could be, theoretically, if you think that all mikvahs are unsafe now, or if you, uh, even if, even if mikvahs generally are safe, what about for a person who's in quarantine or is immunocompromised? Maybe for those people, they're they either are not allowed to or it'd be unsafe for them to use the mikvah because of their increased personal risk. So in those cases where there is no option, you know, theoretical or practical, no option of mikvah, what alternatives might exist? And uh, so there, there were a few different proposals. We're not gonna go into too much detail on these because you, know, you, you, uh, you could write entire uh, you know, contracy and 50-page books about these things, and some have. Um, but we'll just try to get the, the general principles, the major uh, issues at hand that come up in, the, in these questions. So, one view uh, both Rev Chaim Ovadia and I think more, uh, more uh, publicly and, and more prominently Rev Chaim Amsalem, former member of Knesset in Israel, uh, have different uh, suggestions as to how one might, uh, how a woman might go to the mikveh, not in the mikveh, but have an equivalent of a mikveh in. A bathtub in a home bathtub. So before we, we get into the details of the proposal, let's take a look at some classical sources here. What does one need uh, a woman who wants to go to the mikvah uh, after being a niddah to resume uh, regular relations with her husband? What what what's needed for a mikvah in that case? So the Rambam writes, Din Shakol Mayim Michunasim tovlin Bahem Shenera Mikvamayim mayim, Any body of water that's gathered together biblically works as a mikvah. Um, and how much do you need? you need? You need You need to dunk the entire body at once within the water What's the average size of, uh, you know, of a person is three cubic amos One amma by one amma by three amos An amma is somewhere between a foot and a half and two feet So, uh, so that amount of cubic, three cubic amos That's 40 saw of water there are different views on this, and this is partially relevant to our discussion, but the smallest estimation of 40 saw is, uh, I hope I'm getting my numbers right, is 80 gallons, and the highest number is 170-something gallons. Um, and if you know how big your, your normal size bathtub is, it is smaller than either of those measurements. Hold that thought. Uh, that's biblically speaking. Biblically speaking, any body of water, of gathered water, works for a mikvah. However, next to halach, divrei sofrim, rabbinically, or whatever medir e means, somewhere between rabbinically or maybe a bit more than rabbinically, water that's gathered, that doesn't naturally fall into your pool or mikvah, but which you gathered, you brought there, you, you, know, you, uh, you scooped up that water and poured it in yourself, those are puzzle medir abanan rabbinically not acceptable. Um, and uh, the Rambam, that's the Rambam, that the, the problem with mayim she'uvim, is that it's a Durbanan problem. So if I were to take, if I were to go outside and, uh, you know, I don't know, draw water out of the ground and then put it into a pool, uh, 40 sa for a mikvah, that would not work rabbinically, according to the Ramah. Others, uh, drawing on source 14, um, but others as well, talks about, but uh, if one gathers water on their shoulder and then makes a mikvah out of that, um, I would think yeah, that would work. It has to happen automatically through heaven, not through human use, and that sounds like there's a biblical problem with filling up a mikveh with a water on your own. The Shulchan seems to pass like the Rambam. Um, uh, sorry, that yeah. Arba'im sasha amru the forty sah Tsarach shelo yu sheuvim. You can't have drawn those waters. Shemhem sheuvim sulem. They're they're not they're not valid. They're not good if they're if they're drawn but it sounds like he would just say midr rabbinically following the Rambam, and the Ramah argues on him and says, the mikvah ushuv If the whole thing is drawn, that would be biblically problematic. Um, and he says, without going into those details, there's a dispute as to whether a mikvah that you draw the water for is biblically or rabbinically uh, problematic. So that's one problem. You, so there's a few different problems here, right? When you need a mikvah, let's say you want to make a mikvah in your bathtub. So how would you do that? So one issue, is you need to make sure that there's 40 sun, that there's the requisite amount of water, um, and that the person would be able to, to dip into that. And that's one issue. Another issue is the water can't be she It can't be drawn. Now, what do you say about tap water? Is tap water she Is tap water drawn or not? So on the one hand, it, it, you know, it, there's some human ac- action that's necessary in making it happen. On the other hand, you're not really drawing it, you're sort of releasing a pressure valve, and then the water is, by itself, entering your uh, entering your house. But on the other, other hand, um, d- depending on how the water system is set up, very often the way these things work is that there's a water tank uh, that holds the water, and once you have the water held inside a kli, inside a utensil, that counts as she'uvin. But that would depend on whether it's set up like a utensil or not. Is it really a clea is it really a utensil holding the water, or is it more just a way of the water passing through? They're both practical and conceptual questions that need to be answered to respond to that issue. And yet one more challenge that comes up: source sixteen here, any metal item that has a name by itself, meaning it's considered its own item, is impure, meaning can become impure, um, uh, which also means that it's a kli, counts as a utensil. Except for doors, and other other things have been a model, a lock. There's an exception for certain items, certain utensils, that if they're made, they're they're made for the purposes of installing in the ground, then they might not count as a utensil. So the question here is as follows, what about, what is the status of a bathtub, right? A bathtub seems, it looks like a utensil, right? It's a large, it's a large tub. Right, tubs hold things. Tubs are utensils. So isn't there a problem of you put the water in your your bathtub, the bathtub itself is a utensil? So one possible argument to to argue against that is to say, well, it's na silicarka, is that the bathtub is not it's not really meant to be used as a separate tub. They have those old school tubs with the with the feet. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a normal bathtub that you install. It's meant to be installed in the ground. So maybe that doesn't count as an independent utensil, that just counts as uh, sort of part of the ground, in which case there wouldn't be a problem. So there, there's a big question there. Um, you know, one of my teachers or Danny Wolf thinks that that would resolve that problem. Others disagree. But so there's, there's several different problems here. If we, if we t- take a step back and look at the big picture, number one, you need to get enough water in your mikveh, in your bathtub. You need to have 40 sah in the bathtub. Number two, it can't be she'uvim. It can't be drawn water, however you define that. And number three, the bathtub itself cannot count as a as a klee, as a utensil. So you'd have to argue that it, it counts as attached to the ground. Rav Chaim um, Amsalam, in his in his lengthy essay B'Chart B'Chaim, Choose Life, he argues that there's room to allow for uh, to allow for uh, being tovel in a in one's bathtub. Except he doesn't quite say it that way. He says it's, it's a little. He has a few different formulations. He jumps back and forth, but let's read at least a couple of places where, where he discusses his ruling. So he says, In normal times, you need one needs to be tovel in a valid mikveh. If you don't have this option, like during coronavirus, where all mikvahs are closed, given governmental decision and health officials so if you see that there's no mikvahs open and you cannot you cannot withstand the challenge meaning that uh, i guess a couple um, a couple where the the uh, wife is tame is is uh, is uh, is anida a wants to you know it sees they can't they can't uh, withstand the normal restrictions without the what the, the wife going to the mikvah. So, he says, so the suggestion is to be tovel, for the wife to be tovel, in the sta- on the standards that I'll discuss. In order to minimize the sin, meaning, this is not fully permissible, what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting is for someone who's going to be sexually intimate anyway, this is less severe than the alternative of not doing this. So that's, here it doesn't sound like he's actually permitting. This is not a wide-ranging permission. A temporary suspension. And, uh, you know, a response for people who are looking for some solution. Elsewhere, he says, I'm not talking to Haredim, I'm talking to traditional Jews, who, you know, try to keep the halacha, but are not absolutely stringent, or something like that. So, I think for reasons of time, we're not going to look into into all the details here, but essentially he, he argues as follows. He finds many, many sources, especially among Sephardic, uh, Sephardic uh, rabbis throughout the generations, but then also uh, some others, including American, many American rabbis in, in a later draft, where, where they allow using tap water for the mikvah. So this is the issue we talked about before. Does tap water count as she'uvim, as drawn, which would invalidate it or not? And he shows a whole bunch of rabbis who allowed tap water. So he says, okay, if the tap water is allowed, so that's she'uvim, so that's uh, that's that's not a problem. And even if you think shuvim is a problem, it's only derabanan because we posk and we hold like the Rambam we saw before. Question whether shuvim is a biblical problem or a rabbinic problem. Says it's only a rabbinic problem. Worst case, so that's not so bad. And he says this. He only says in some versions of some formulations. He's a little inconsistent. And you might say that needing forty sa needing eighty gallons of water, which most bathtubs don't have, you might say that's also only derabanan. Maybe that's not biblically mandated. That's only rabbinically mandated. It's possible to read that into the Rambam. That's not the standard view. So if you say all those things, then maybe it's better to, be, uh, to have the wife be tovel in the bathtub and at least you know, downgrade the prohibition to rabbinic instead of, instead of continuing uh, without that and continuing sexual activity without that, which would be biblically prohibited. That's his suggestion. It's not exactly clear. Is he really saying this is not a permission? This is just a way of minimizing the prohibition? Or is he sort of tr- through the back door trying to say this is a permission too? Not fully clear. Um, here's where he says that it's not for the Haredi community. It's in big bold letters in the, in the original. Um, but uh, so there's different formulations here. One of the interesting things, he says, you know, I'm not making this decision on my own. This will only be valid if three rabbis, three great rabbis sign off on it. One of them, the most prominent, is Rav Elio Abarjal, and if that name rings a bell, it's because he was one of the signatories on the Zoom Hatter, also also the most prominent. He's the uh, Chief Judge of Rabbinical Courts of Jerusalem, a very prominent position, and uh, um, uh, so he was asked to to sign off. So his Haskamah, his approbation of sorts, appears early on in, in, the, in the publication of Rav Amsalem. He says, uh, etc. etc. So this is a question addressed to Jews in a place where there's no mikveh. Now already this is suspicious because this would not be relevant to Israel or America or any large Jewish community, right? All all all, all major Jewish communities have a mikveh open as far as I know. So he even sees he's sort of limiting his response to a community with no mikvah. mikvah it's too far away we have a attack uh one amakhoya man a bekeshabirahama kodnis group bit but they cannot become folk right everything's closing down given the dangers the kushlan love of nezion they can't withhold withstand the test theynam omdem bizoni sion and he says he says that they can allow uh he says they should allow certain things idavor zam until the time is over now he says barhavokara doraiza uh, Rav A-Rajal. he says, okay, this is his essay about about situations where there's no mikvah, and this is how he wants to minimize the prohibition, and uh, that's what he says. So he doesn't, and, and here's a blessing for him. So as several people have noted, this both is not talking about the situation in Israel or America for that matter, and it's not. He doesn't actually endorse the position. He just says this is what he says. this is my blessing. So it, it definitely seems like Rav Aruchel was not willing. To give a real haskama, a real uh, approbation. This is noted by an essay. I, I think un, un, uh, un, You know, not, uh, not, not uh, with the cited author. Anonymous essay, as far as I can tell, about Hayim Asher the Twelve Batim, Shein Arguing on Rav Amsalem. There's a whole host of things on which they argue, but one of the points was the this whole decision was supposed to be only if rabbis agree, and the rabbi, the main rabbi that's supposed to agree, didn't actually agree in his in his letter. Um, a few of the arguments that were made against, one of them is that you can't just say that all tap water is not shuvim. You need to look into the details in each place. You need to make sure that uh, the tap water doesn't get held in some sort of water tower or water, uh, uh, water uh, uh, holding uh, item or utensil. Or, for example, in Israel, hot water. What do you do with hot water? You heat it up in the dude Shemesh, generally. So that's a utensil, presumably. The D- Shemesh, which holds the water, would be a utensil, and that would create a problem of shukva. So that's that's one problem. Just on, on his precedents aren't really relevant because um, they're talking about uh, they're not they're not necessarily talking about the same situation. He also has different readings of, of, of a Rambam and a Tshuva. Um, he also one of the other objections is that um, the one of the main arguments of Rav Amslam is that it's only rabbinically a problem, so better to do the rabbinic thing than to do the biblical thing. And one of the responses to that is the argument that if you intentionally do something wrong rabbinically, that might not even work biblically. That might not work at all. So that's another argument that's made. Um, and also the question is how one of the, the main sources that's drawn upon is Rav, Rav Nassas, a major Moroccan posik, where he allowed he allowed use of, of tap water for a mikvah, not for a bathtub, for a mikvah, in, in a situation of people who were um, who, were, who were stranded after a war, and uh, the, the argument in response is that that would only be for people with an extended period of time where they wouldn't be able to be with their spouses. But to just do it for a month or two of separation wouldn't be allowed. So th- there are many different points that he argues on. It may be a little over the top, but there's major pushback to Ramam so You know, I would add, it only comes up in passing in this letter, but it doesn't address the question of the, of, uh, of the bathtub itself that the bathtub might be a cleat, the bathtub might be a tensile. So really there are several different issues that are not addressed by Rav Amsalam. His, his decision was not, as, you know, was not uh, largely followed. It's basically been rejected, but it's important to consider what the alternative might look like. Um, some have noted that, you know, in theory, there, you know, it wouldn't be too crazy to say that if one figures out whether the water in, in, in one's house uh, comes, you know, ha- how the water arrives there, and if it doesn't come through any storage uh, you know, utensils, that would mean that the water would not be would not be she-ubim. And if one has an extra large bathtub, maybe a jacuzzi, something that can hold at least 80 gallons, if not more, uh, and if one uh, if one makes sure that uh, that you know that there are no other problems or finds another way of filling the bathtub, you know, maybe with uh, with uh, ice that then melts, which some have allowed. Um, there may be there may be ways of having mikvahs in one's house. In fact, in America, 70 years ago, there were attempts to do that, although they ran into similar problems, and that's not the standard. So, uh, it seems like the the uh, the attempt to have mikvahs in one's house has not been uh, not been accepted as as uh, terribly helpful. Certainly not by uh, you know anyone besides um, a very very small number of decisors. And there there seem to be problems with that permissive view. So let's move to the next alternative scenario, which is what happens if there's no mikvah, right? So as was mentioned before, under normal circumstances, a woman who's anidah is prohibited to her husband. And uh, for that prohibition includes not just uh, sexual activity, but even generally, even things like the harchakos, even things like uh, holding hands or passing things to each other. And the question is what happens if there's an extended period of time where the mikvah is not available, again, either because the mikvah itself is unsafe um, or uh, generally, or because uh, you know, a woman is immunocompromised and can't go or for whatever other reason, what does one do in that case? And here, uh, there's, there's been a bit of a debate. So, Rav Sperber, who's known as a sort of a left-leaning posek in Israel, permitted in this letter that we're not going to read inside, we'll look at the summary, he permitted uh, that since this is, since this is an ext- a, a difficult situation, and uh, since the, the, there may only be a, a rabbinic prohibition on everything other than uh, sexual intercourse itself, there may be room uh, where people would otherwise do, maybe fall into worse situations or have major uh, uh, challenges of other sorts, mental health or otherwise, um, or when we p- place too much of a strain on the marriage, there would be room to allow for, uh, to allow for uh, you know, things like holding hands or even kissing or even sleep, sleeping in the same bed while wearing clothes. And that's based on the Ramban, that that uh, you know, coming uh, contact short of, of sexual activity are only rabbinically pro- prohibited. And there's a lenient position in the Gemara based the, uh, that, that one can attach to that view that uh, that, that might allow, allow for things here. To stop you from doing a worse sin, a biblical sin, that then maybe there's room to allow coming close. There was a major attack on this view Both from from Shmuel Eliyahu, you know, a prominent rabbi in Israel, and he 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 argues on some of the sources. But it sounds like maybe a larger argument on his part is uh, well, first of all, we don't poskin like that view. We seem to rule in the Shulchan Aruch that there's a biblical prohibition of even even things less than sexual activity. Um, But also, he says he quotes a, a story, a fascinating story in the Gemara. There was some great rabbi who died young, and they said, why did he die young? And they said, uh, they asked his wife, was he was he not careful with Hilcho's Nida? And she said, no, he was. He kept, he never, we never uh, were sexual, you know, never did had any uh, sexual activity that was prohibited. So, but what we did do was, um, when I was in Nida, they, we ate together and drank together and we slept in the same bed. We never, never had any sexual activity, but we, uh, we, you know, we didn't keep the Harkakos. And well, that explains why God killed him, because he didn't keep the har-chakos. So uh, this, this Gemara is used to emphasize the severity of these Harkakos, as Rosh points to. And he also says, and I think this may be the main point, that even if you could find room to be lenient in a specific case, this will lead to all sorts of other things. Uh, this will lead to other people. Then once we allow things short of sexual activity, we allow uh, kissing and hugging with one's wife who's a need, that people will allow it even between uh, two, two people who are single or with, uh, you know, a, a man and, and a, a woman married to a different man. And it'll get out of hand, right? And once you start allowing A and, and B, it'll lead to another thing. It's a slippery slope and it will lead to terrible things. And then he ends... What's your definition of a time of great exigency? Just because uh, you know, just because the, the couple wants to have uh, to have intimacy of some sort, that's shatadchak. You shouldn't allow that. That was his his letter, and it was accompanied by this letter without as many details. But many many rabbis across the board in the Datilumi world coming out against that view. Now, um, Rabbi Yoni Rosenzweig. Who posted in English a helpful analysis of this? We're not going to have time to go through it closely, but basically he says that uh, he says that you know it seems that the pushback may have been a bit too strong. So there, there he says, let's start with the baseline. There are often cases where, in the normal mat, normal course of things, including childbirth, uh, a couple is not is not in, in in physical contact is not supposed to be physical contact for a lengthy period of time, even a couple of months after often after having a baby. That's that can be the case. And, um, but if, if things go on beyond that point, beyond what's normal, and there's difficulty, you know, he says there may be room in a case-by-case basis to allow for supportive touch, rather than aff- affectionate romantic touch. So instead of definitely not kissing, but maybe holding hands, that's not uh, leading to something more than that, so to speak, just holding hands as, as being supportive. And he's not allowing that as a general rule, he's saying as a case-by-case basis. So my sense is, uh, and this is not publicized in too many places, although it is here, there are, there are some poskim out there who, on a case-by-case basis, may find uh, leniencies for couples to, to have at least, you know, to hold hands or something like that, but not to allow for uh, the more, uh, the, you know, the more, uh, not, not quite sexual, but, but intimacy uh, of, of greater forms that the Ripsperber allow for. And obviously, this depends on community, and I'm sure that some communities are more stringent and say, no, if you're not going to the mikvah, you keep the basic. Halacha, unless there's some, you know, men, major mental health, health crisis. But at least in some communities, um, you know, the ones, let's say that Ravioni Rosenzweig and Roy Sperber are serving. It seems like there are people who, uh, who are uh, some people who are relying on these leniencies as they don't go to the mikveh. Let's now, uh, for our final piece here, look at, you know, uh, leaving aside these two, these two alternatives: either trying to have a mikveh in a bathtub, which did not catch on too well, or not going to the mikvah and applying some leniencies in terms of, of intimacy. So what was sort of the main, th- neither of those were the main approach. Those were sort of, uh, uh, you know, either side side approaches or, or secondary uh, uh, attempts at, at minimizing, uh, you know, the challenge. But the main approach was to leave the mikvahs open. And we saw before, a lot of that was based on making sure that it was as safe as possible. Which is not to say it's absolutely safe, right? Even just walking outside is not absolutely safe. Um, so. I think some people have been very careful in saying, in not, in saying this is not, you know, we can't promise you that this is absolutely safe. We can't promise you that walking outside is absolutely safe either, but we're making it as safe as possible. And we think that it's very reasonable uh, following CDC guidelines, very reasonable for people to continue doing this at the rate they are. The, uh, the, there is guidance from two different, uh, two different uh, Orthodox organizations that talk globally about how MICFA should run, namely the OU and RCA, and the Yoatzot Tzot, and there's, they largely overlap, we'll quickly skim them. But maybe, maybe the most important uh, line comes towards the beginning of the OU RCA messaging uh, they sent out uh, based on their postgame to, to rabbis and for public consumption, everyone must respect a woman's wish to delay her immersion in the mikveh and resumption of intimacy until the pandemic has passed. The following is shared for the sake of those who wish to continue to access this sacred resource at this time, meaning, the idea of forcing a woman to go to the mikvah or pressuring a woman to go to the mikvah is absolutely not to be done. Presumably they're saying this because there are people and maybe even communities where this is done, but that is, that is rejected um, by the OUNRCA. If a woman thinks that it's unsafe, even if, you know, even if the mikvah follows CDC guidelines and every public health professional thinks it's safe, if a woman thinks it's unsafe, there's, you know, she shouldn't be uh, forced or pressured in any way to, uh, to go to the mikvah, it's an important, an important point because you wouldn't want there to be a situation where uh, you know, people, uh, you know, where, where women or anyone is forced to do something they think is unsafe uh, for the good of, of someone else, so to speak. Um, and some of, the, some of the guidelines here, so only symptom-free people may work in or use the mikvah. If you're not symptom-free, if you're in, if you're in quarantine, you can't go, um, all preparations happen at home, no transactions, at the mikveh, everything needs to be freshly sanitized and cleaned. Um, the mikveh attendant who checks, usually checks the woman going to the mikveh, should, everything should be done at a distance, there should be no touching. And now some uh, special leniencies that aren't usually aren't usually uh, done, which is, although not usually halakhly advised, and this is based on Rav Moshe, uh, that one shouldn't do this generally, uh, during the current pandemic, a woman sh- uh, should shower when arriving home, right? Usually, uh, the practice is not to shower after using the mikveh because it's sort of Xera. People might think that the shower is what allowed it, not the mikvah itself. In this case, given the pandemic, a woman not only can but should shower when arriving home. Fine, more, more, uh, more things. Uh, Attendants should wear gloves, there should be proper hand washing, um, and uh, again, it cites the CDC's guidance that no traces of COVID-19 have been detected in drinking water. There's no evidence that it can be spread to humans through pools or hot tubs, and uh, and it doesn't even mention that, oh, okay, you're right, it's also destroyed by, by chlorine or bromine and filtration. So there's, you know, as far as they can tell, there's no particular reason why the mikveh should be any more unsafe than any other area. They don't quite say these words, but I've heard many people say, if you, if you go shopping, this is about the same, if probably less risk than going shopping. If you go shopping, you should feel equally safe, if not more safe, going to the mikvah. Um, one more leniency that comes up in Nishmat's guidelines, in the Yoetzeh guidelines, is that a woman. Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes there are extenuating circumstances where not everyone can go to the mikveh at night. Sometimes in a community with a very heavy volume of mikveh use because of one of, the, one of the things that were done was to space out mikveh trips so that you wouldn't have two people there at the same time and you clean it in between uses. But once you do that, you may run out of hours in the night to go to the mikveh. Usually mikvah is used at night uh, for women, at night, but not during the day. So uh, in a case where that wouldn't be possible, let's say strict curfew, Immersion during the daytime on day 8 may be permissible, so to wait if you can't go to the mikveh this night You wait until the next day and then can go during the day and there may be room for that as well um, uh, Just Rav Shechter here. This is his chuva his, uh, allowing showering after going to the mikveh This is Rav Usher Weiss allowing uh, tevila on the 8th day uh, during the day instead of during the night so those b- between having uh, making sure that health-wise mikvahs were as safe as possible and uh, and having some flexibility, and having standards uh, to make sure that everything was safe, and having some flexibility on uh, sort of secondary minor allahic issues like going during the day if necessary, uh, if necessary for, for spacing, or uh, or showering afterwards to increase, uh, to ensure safety. Mikvas have, have overwhelmingly remained open. And again, not, not necessarily for everyone, it's a personal choice. Um, it's a personal choice. Those who think they're not safe, or those who actually are not, you know, are, are medically assumed to be not safe because uh, you know they're immunocompromised or or otherwise, um, you know, the the you know the they don't have to use the mikvah. And as we said before, there's somewhat uh, divergent views as to whether there are certain leniencies there or not. I guess I just wanted to close. Oh, and I'll just mention a couple of other points. Uh, some some uh, women have been have uh, sort of shifted. Their use of birth control uh, to to skip the to skip their period, um, which uh, at least for some women is possible, and that's one way of avoiding the whole issue entirely. Even though not everyone advises that, sometimes some some uh, so, you know some groups do, some don't. But uh, certainly under the current circumstances, to just uh, you know to use birth control pills to or or other forms of birth control to just not have a period and not have a need to go to the mikvah is another method that uh, that people have been using. Just to end with two two final thoughts. Um, one is that this topic, I, as far as I can tell, it's a bit of an outlier compared to the other topics. First of all, I think it's it's uh, it's much less discussed. There's a lot less written on this topic compared to other hot button topics. Um, as it happens, I think uh, you know I think as you can tell, many of the participants in these discussions have been women, which is often not the case in orthodox halachic discourse, and uh, a lot of that is a function of the fact that. Many women through the OSEZ program, through other programs are very well trained and work very closely uh, with, with issues of mikvah. And uh, that really shows in terms of who's, who's stepped up. I'd say Uotsso and Maharatz have stepped up and and been leaders uh, on these conversations. Um, but also there's been a lot less written, a lot less a lot less in, in the public forum. So there could be a couple of reasons for this. Um, I would say two main reasons that, that come to mind. One would be that generally there's you know sometimes people, Feel that uh, you know matters relating to sexual propriety are not so sanua, are not you know it's better to keep them quiet and not discuss them of course the cost of that is if people have information they need to know for their own health uh, mental or, or physical they wouldn't know but that that could be one factor and another factor is I think we saw in Rev. Elio's letter the, the slippery slope worry if you think that there's room to permit in a particular circumstance um, given given just human nature and the nature of these things, there's worry that that could be carried over. And people would say, you know, uh, people would say, well, if we allow uh, physical touch in, in this case, under coronavirus, maybe we should allow it in all sorts of other cases. So I think those may be a couple of the reasons why there's been not so much, not so much discussion here. Um, although there may be further reasons as well. And also I think one of the reasons is, is that I think, uh, you know, the sort of the status quo seems to work. Both really want to use the mikvah, the mikvas remain open. And as safe as possible. Those who don't want to use the mikvah, uh, generally, uh, not always. And I've heard there are some cases not, but generally are able to figure out uh, the the proper uh, halakhic guidance to, to remain, uh, you know, uh, uh, safe uh, both physically and mentally. So that may be a factor as well. Just to end with this last point, and then we'll take some questions. Why uh, why are mikvahs the last thing to close? And a really great article back way back in in March uh, uh, about. About uh, why mikvahs are the last things to close, and it points to people, uh, both people's experience as to really needing the mikvah in order to try to uh, to resume, uh, you know, att- attempting to have children, or those who need it for for intimacy. And in general, one of the first things, if not the first thing, to start in a Jewish community when you move in is a mikvah, or a way for women, a way for women to become uh, ritually pure uh, to allow resumption of of relations uh, relations with the family. So again, if you if you looked at the guidance under coronavirus, what, what closes, everything closes, except for essentially, except for the women's mikvah. And I think it's a function of a few things. Uh, number one, that it's able, that, uh, you know, uh, that both according to the CDC and, and other experts, mikvahs have, when following guidelines, have been able to remain as safe as possible and, and probably safer than other experiences, than other things like shopping, and the great need and the centrality of, of allowing for uh, you know, allowing for, for intimacy within a marriage. So I'm um, happy to take some questions now, if there are. I see someone, uh, John wrote a question. Um, some of the sources talk about going to mikveh as soon as possible, seemingly because the Tumma itself is problematic. The OURCA guidelines about not forcing women to go as soon as possible seems to be addressed to those people. Is there a basis for saying that women should go to a mikveh as soon as possible, regardless of her personal relationships? So it's a great question, and it touches on a couple of different uh, halachic discussions. One is the discussion in the Gemara about tefillah bismana mitzvah. Generally, in terms of tefillah, not just in terms of uh, you know, marriage, uh, marital context, but tefillah overall, even for the impurity that we don't practice nowadays, doesn't need to be done, ideally, is it a mitzvah to do it on the first possible day? Um, it's all about Hogs in the Gemara we don't poskin practically that that's the case nowadays. So there's no, that idea of tefillah bismanah mitzvah doesn't apply in a technical sense. I think there's often, uh, you know, and I think this is something where people will disagree. I, I just was in touch with um, someone who's the Yoetzet who says we never, uh, you know, we never, you know, obviously people who want to uh, can and should go as soon as possible, but we don't believe women should ever be pressured to go to a mikvah. That's, that's I, I believe the Yo-et-Sed, uh you know, the Yoetzot's official position. Um, I think others might say, well, you know, it's really not fair to, uh, you know, it's not fair to, uh, to the husband or something like that, uh, that, uh, you know, arbitrarily the woman would withhold, uh, would withhold uh, you know, the possibility of, of intimacy, although you could see how that would lead to all sorts of problems. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, I think, where that view is coming from. So the OU coming out here. And I don't know if they—I don't think they formulated it as a general guidance, but at least in these cases, the OU and RCA coming out and saying, under these circumstances, certainly no one should be pressured to go to the mikvah, even if we think it's totally safe, we think it's not a problem. But people have, you know, have to be comfortable doing it before they do it. This might relate to the question of how we understand uh, how we understand pikuach nefesh. There are some views that pikuach nefesh, the idea that um, that uh, you know you can violate Shabbos or other things due to danger, is subjective. Meaning, even if you know, there's there's no real danger. If one really feels that there's a danger, within certain certain cases, that would count as well. So that may be a factor in that decision. But um, uh, but uh, you know, the question is a great question, and, and this is somewhat of a fraught topic, which does break down generally along you know right left lines as far as I can tell. But in this case, uh, certainly the OU RCA came out and said that um, no no woman should be feel pressured to go to the mikvah. The mikvas are open for those who want to use them. I will say anecdotally, based on asking a few friends who are, um, who are you know, yoat or otherwise involved in their communities, that uh, the numbers the numbers are not really down too much from the usual numbers, meaning there'll be some people who are immunocompromised and can't go, and maybe there's some people who are choosing not to go, but overall, the numbers of women going to the mikveh are close to where they usually, where they regularly are, at least in the communities that, uh, that I uh, asked, uh, you know, people who are knowledgeable about. Um, another question from earlier, uh, can you use MOF gear on a regular basis for processors, toasters, etc.? And I think technically yes, and I think the guidance is only to use Hefgar in cases where it's really necessary. I Meaning, if you're lazy and don't want to go to the mikveh, that's not a good reason to use it. But if it's something like a toaster, which might break or something like that, some, some posting would say you can easily, you can just simply be MOF gear. Others would say that apparently if you, if you um, put a toaster in a mikveh and wait a couple of weeks, it doesn't break but I have not experimented with that enough to know for sure. Um, Okay, Uh, a comment from Facebook um, that sent my way. It's important to distinguish between Tefillah Bakli and Mayim Sha'uvim regarding issues of a bathtub and issues with water. Right, and I agree, there are two separate issues. Number one, being Tovel in a Kli, if the bathtub counts as a utensil or not, that's one issue. And there's a separate issue of Mayim Shuvim, whether the water counts as being drawn. You'd need to solve both of these issues. Um, It's not at all clear that uh, proposals for using a mikveh, uh, using a bathtub as a mikveh uh, solve, certainly not the, um, the bath, well, e- both of them are questionable because the bathtub, even if it's meant to be installed, it still was a clea, it was a utensil beforehand and the water, uh, the water, the source of the water, it depends on where it came from and whether there were water tanks along the way or not. Um, if there are any other questions, I'm happy to take them. If not, uh, this is the last of the uh, series of halachic responses to coronavirus. So it's been, uh, it's been a pleasure learning with you these issues in these very challenging times. And uh, may, may we all be uh, so lucky as to, to be able to deal with halachic issues that are not, uh, not based on crisis, but are based on healthier times. May we all be very safe and healthy, and uh, uh, everyone should be well.